Maya, chapter 13. There'll be different segments. We'll start with verses 6 through 9. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem for the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there are the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. Verse 15. In those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Verse 23 to 25. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod. They could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them, and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. In the last verses, 30 to 31. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, thank you that you are good. That you are the good God who works through history to guide your people. Lord, as we study this last chapter of Nehemiah, would you help us to understand, Lord, what your spirit is inspiring us to say here and to respond to in this passage. Lord, we thank you for the testimony of Nehemiah, how it's taught us about renewal and focusing on you in, in the midst of troubles and trials and your work that happens in the midst of imperfect people. As we close out this book today, Lord, would you remind us also of your mercy and help us to know you as the Lord and our King, even in the midst of our sin. We give you all the praise and glory. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So this week we are on our last week of Nehemiah. I hope it's been a blessing to you over these months. It's been a real blessing to me as well. I mean, and I think it's been an appropriate time for us to study this book. Uh, that learning about renewal, learning about having faith through tough times. And this week we are closing our book by finishing chapter 13. And last week when we began this chapter, we saw that Nehemiah was warning his people about their slow descent from the high of heights that they were in chapter 12 with joyful worship and celebration, giving their lives to God, 
that they had slowly descended back to where they had first begun. You know, just a couple days ago, uh, because, you know, the Christmas season is upon us, I was looking online at different, you know, possible things to get for my family. And I was looking at reviews, and one thing about Amazon reviews that it's been kind of tenuous for me lately is just knowing that, you know, with these reviews, uh, there are often people who are planting reviews and kind of companies who are, are you know, falsifying reviews. So usually I look at the, the most negative reviews first. And one review that I saw that stood out for me said in bold letters, lowered standards. And it was just kind of caught my eye, lowered standards. And basically the reviewer went on to say that they used to like this product, but then you know something changed and now they thought it was bad. And I was thinking just how damaging that kind of review can be for a company. Like, yeah, your product was great, but now it's not great anymore. And I was also thinking about the, the process that got them to that place. Like, they didn't start, or maybe they did start going, hey, we want lowered standards. We want the really poor standards for our product. Maybe they did. Some companies definitely do that. They want to sell the lowest quality product for the highest amount of money. But I'm sure a lot of companies start with good intentions. They want to do a good job. They want to do good business. They want to sell a good product. But then little compromises happen. Then shortcuts happen. Then little choices happen that led them down this road to having kind of a substandard product. And I'm sure they didn't go with that intention, but it just gradually, slowly happened that way. And when we look at our passage in in, uh, Nehemiah today, we see that Nehemiah is talking about the same thing but in the life of the people of Jerusalem. We see in our passage that Nehemiah went away. He went away for about 12 years. Well, I mean, sorry, he was in Jerusalem for about 12 years, and then he went away for a few years. He was called back to uh, Susa to serve the Persian king. And when when he left, the people had high standards. The bar was set so high They were worshiping, they were listening to the word spoken, they were praying, they were giving their lives to God and following the commandments. Yet when he returned after 12 years, that bar had just lowered and lowered and lowered and lowered. We see in this uh, passage that basically the people of Israel went away from every uh, commandment that they had given to God earlier. They had started marrying idol worshipers again and worshiping idols in the temple. They had stopped practicing the Sabbath like we read about back in chapter 8. They had stopped tithing and giving to the work of the temple. And we see that when Nehemiah saw all these things in this passage, he was furious. I don't know if you caught that last verse or one of the last verses that I reread, but it said that Nehemiah got so angry, he was literally pulling the hair out of the people around him because he was so angry. Now, this is not like a permission for us if we get angry at each other to start pulling out each other's hair, but we see through it that he was furious about this. And he was furious about this because he could see what was happening to the people of Jerusalem. They were losing their identity. Their standards got so low that they were forgetting who they were. They forgot their hope and they lost their witness. 
They were becoming exactly like everyone else around them. And so Nehemiah, he responded with extreme anger because there was an extreme problem that had high stakes. If he didn't uh, seek to do anything about it, they might lose their faith all together. And so when we look at kind of this idea of lowered standards, we can see that like the Israelites, as Christians, our standards can also waver at times. And sometimes our standards waver out of necessity. You know, you, in certain seasons of your life, your faith might be like high standard, bar raised so high, you are passionate about worship, you're learning so much about God, everything's going great, it just seems like God is present in your life, but then things change. Seasons change, life changes. You know, kids come, uh, you know, physical illness and ailments come, uh, Different seasons happen in terms of work and, and stresses in life. And so suddenly that standard kind of goes down a little bit and goes, oh, I'm not so passionate as much as I am. I still want to be committed. I still want to be involved, but I'm just not feeling the same way. And that is a necessary kind of ebb and flow of our life and faith. But that's not really what Nehemiah is talking about here. The kind of lowering of standards that he's talking about here is more problematic And it has to do with calling sin by another name. Their standards started to get lower and lower when they started calling sin by another name. They no longer said, that's sin, but they said, oh, no, 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 that's not sin anymore. That's that's socially acceptable now. You know, it could be that instead of calling something materialism, they called it security. And making a good future for your family and yourself. You know, instead of calling something morally permissible or not living a holy life, not following God's will, it could be seen as FOMO or YOLO or living your best life now. You know, instead, your sin becomes seen as my needs or my wants or my opinions. And it has a subtle shift then. And that shift then is very gradual. I don't think any people start going, I want to just fall away from God. I don't want to follow these things. I want to see as permissible all these things I didn't see as permissible before. But it just happens slowly. There's this progression. Firstly, sin becomes tolerated. Okay, I can put up with it. It's all right. And then it becomes permissible. It's actually okay. No problem. And then it becomes useful. Actually, this helps me. Living this lifestyle is better than the lifestyle I was living before. And then it becomes attractive. Actually, I like this lifestyle better. And then it becomes necessary. We need that sinful aspect of our And then it was attractive. And then it was necessary. And this is a good lesson for us as well. Remember, chapter 13, like we talked about last week, was a warning from Nehemiah. He could have ended at 12 with everybody worshiping and celebrating, big choirs going across the walls of Jerusalem. But instead, he left this warning, a realistic warning about carelessness in faith. And one aspect of a careless faith is allowing our standards to be lessened without even realizing it. So today we're going to look at the slow kind of descent of the people of Israel in four key areas of their life, in worship, in relationships, in work, and in family. 
And as we look at these, we're going to look at how that descent can happen in our lives as well because they illustrate that kind of descent. And also, as part of Advent, we see very appropriately that we also see the hope for those with lowered standards and with those in need of help. So we're first going to look at the first area of descent that we see in Israel, and that is the lowering of standards of worship. Now, we read last week that while... Nehemiah was out of Jerusalem in Persia that this priest named Eliashib invited this guy named Tobiah to take up uh, rooms in the temple and do business out of the temple. And that was problematic for two reasons. Firstly, Tobiah was an Ammonite. As we talked about last week, the people had just said no Ammonites worship in the temple because they worship idols. They pollute the worship of God. But there's this Ammonite now in the temple, exactly where they said they didn't want him to be. And then secondly, Tobiah being an Ammonite, is that Tobiah was an enemy. As we've heard all throughout Nehemiah, this guy Tobiah and Sanballat brought armies against Jerusalem and wanted to kill them all, to massacre them to a person. And now this guy is in the temple, in the very center of his enemies, doing business. So when Nehemiah returned, we can see that he is justifiably angry. And we see what he does. He says, I was very angry and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chamber and I brought back the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the incense. So we see here that Nehemiah does this purge. He just takes every like bit of Tobiah's stuff, every part of his presence, even as the whole thing cleaned and cleansed, just so that the kind of the, the stink of Tobiah wouldn't be there anymore. And we see why he did this. Because Tobiah and Eliashib's presence and their actions had corrupted the worship of God. It had actually kind of um, crippled the worship of God. And we can see how this happens for us as well. I mean, for Eliashib and Tobiah, what happened is that Eliashib used these rooms that were meant for the tithes and offerings of Israel. They were meant for the money to be put in. So because of that, the people of Israel stopped giving money. They're like, well, you know, there's no rooms for the tithe. I guess we shouldn't give it. So he affected the generosity of Israel. And he also affected the praise of Israel because those rooms were used to hold, uh, to kind of house all the musicians and the priests and everything. So those guys didn't have a place to stay in Jerusalem. They went back to their field. So there was no worship in Jerusalem at the temple as well. So they affected not just themselves, but they affected the worship of others as well. And that's what happens when we lower our standards in worship. Now you might be thinking, well, how do we lower our standards in worship? We're here, we sing songs, we listen to sermons, we pray. You know, that's kind of what we do. But again, like we talked about just before, the lowering of our standards of worship is like this low, slow progression. And it happens by taking the focus off of God in worship. By simply taking the worship 
the focus off of God and putting the focus somewhere else. And that starts for us individually, right? We take the focus off of God individually when we just stop praying, when we don't consult the scriptures and ask God's will about our life, when we live as if God does not exist in our life. I mean, that's what the Israelites started doing. They started living as if God didn't exist. They started consulting his word. They stopped kind of being submissive to his will. And they just started doing their own thing. And that kind of individual lowering of standards affects our community as well. Now, how do we lower the, the standard in our worshiping community among us, like on a Sunday, during Bible studies, during the week? One way we do that is just simply by seeing that this place is an option, not a necessity. When we begin to think that worship is not necessary, that is something I can do if I have time, something I do if I, everything's going okay, if I don't want to sleep in, if I don't want to do something else on a Sunday, that begins to take the focus off God in worship. Because worship's no longer about God, it's about my, when, when, what I want and when I want it. And we also take the focus off of worship when other beliefs are added to worship. We are called to worship God and Jesus Christ here. That is who we are, that is who we are, that is the whole reason why we're here. That is the who, the what, the where, and the why, and the when in our worship is Jesus Christ. And so if we add, if we de-emphasize Christ or add other things to Christ or take away from Christ, we are polluting the worship. We are crippling our worship. And we also do that when reconciliation is not sought. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but if you are angry at somebody and you do not reconcile with them, if you hold criticisms and judgment and frustrations about somebody else in this body, in this fellowship, and you do not reconcile, if you do not forgive someone when you should, that takes away from worship. It takes the focus off God and puts it on, on you. You know, it's no, it's no kind of... Um, accident that Jesus spoke so much about forgiveness. He spoke so much about forgiveness that he said, if you haven't reconciled with your neighbor, don't come to the temple. So he was saying to us that you cannot fully worship him if you're holding these things without a desire to reconcile. You will not fully get it. You will not fully understand what God is saying. And you will not just affect your own worship you will affect others as well. Because other people know when there's a conflict happening and it's not resolved. Other people see. So you not only affect your ability to worship, you affect others when we do not seek to reconcile. When we do not... Some, some people, some situations are not reconcilable because the other person does not want to reconcile. But we pollute our worship when we stop trying. When we stop caring, when we stop being kind, when we stop praying, then we lessen our worship here. We lower the standard of it. We say, that can happen. That can be permissible. It's okay. No problem. We can do that and be here. When Jesus specifically says, we can't do that and be here. So also, distractions uh, can pollute and cripple our worship. And when I speak about distractions, there are some distractions that are unavoidable. Like, we want kids in this service. We want families with babies. 
We want to hear crying. We want to hear the pitter-patter of little feet. So that means there's going to be some distractions among us. We're going to be a little bit distracted. But also, there are distractions we can't avoid, like talking in worship. That's a distraction you can't avoid, but it doesn't just affect your worship. It affects other people's worship. Checking your phone in worship is another thing that distracts us from worship. It's something we can avoid, but we still do. And when we do it, we're not only distracting us, we're distracting other people as well, because other people see you checking your phone. Other people see you talking to other people. Other people see you looking at your iPad. And when you do that then, other people go, okay, I guess I can do that. I guess that's okay. I guess we can do that in worship. It's all right. And again, we're lowering our standard. We're taking the focus off of God and putting it somewhere else. So in all of those things, we're simply called to see worship for what it is. It's about God and God alone. But just like Israel, we can lower our standards little by little without even realizing it until we find ourselves kind of with this lukewarm worship. And connected with that is with relationships. We see that Eliashib and Tobiah, they lowered the standard of their worship because their relationship standard was lowered. Tobiah is an Ammonite. So he was, you know... a Uh, He worshipped many gods. He was an enemy from the beginning. Tobiah didn't change. One thing we know about Tobiah is that he's a very consistent member. He's a consistent character in the story. He is always an enemy. He is always a bad guy. He never changes. But Eliashib didn't start that way. Eliashib was a priest. He was someone in charge of the worship of Israel. And in this, in this narrative, we see he's in charge of the storehouses where the tithes and offerings were kept. So he had, like, a very important role. He was part of uh, the group that made worship happen. Yet we see the slow descent for Tobiah. Tobiah may have started as faithful, but he ended as compromised. He ended as letting these corrupting influences in through, uh, into the temple. And so we learn from Eliashib and Tobiah's journey that relationships have power. They have power to influence us in both good and bad ways. And this also connects not just with people, but it connects with influencers on social media. It connects with other people on social media you connect with. All of those things have this ability to influence us. And if we're not aware of that, if we're not taking that into consideration... And also understanding how we are influenced, we will slowly be taken down that descent. Slowly our bar will be lowered about what is permissible, what is tolerable, what is accepted, what is useful, what is attractive. And this also connects to our work. We see that Nehemiah, like when he came into Jerusalem, he hit every aspect of the life of Jerusalem. So firstly it was worship, then he talked about the relationship between Eliashib and Tobiah. And then he, he saw these people working on the Sabbath. And so he came down hard on them as well. And we see that he came down so hard, he said this. He said, What is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? 
Now, I don't think that any of you, if you decide to work on the Sabbath, or, you know, you, you just don't think too much about the Sabbath, that you say, this is evil if someone misses the Sabbath. But that's what he's saying. He is elevating missing the Sabbath to like an evil thing, to acts of intentional evil. And why is he doing this? I mean, we talked about the Sabbath um, some weeks ago when we were talking about the commandments. But here we see that their lack of living out the Sabbath had two detrimental consequences. Firstly, the consequence was they lost their witness to the other tribes around them. They lost their unique ability to show that they were worshipers of God by their not living out the Sabbath. The Sabbath was supposed to be one way that they showed that they followed God. Because everyone else around them worked seven days a week. They were work, 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 never stop. But the Israelites were supposed to work and rest. That was part of the rhythm of who they were as God's people. Yet they had lost that. It said even in the the passage that Nehemiah was about to arrest these merchants because they were standing outside the walls of Jerusalem just waiting to get in on the Sabbath. And they kept doing that even though Nehemiah had stopped that and closed the walls. Because they didn't think the Israelites were any different. They didn't think the Israelites had any difference to them. That they were just the same as everybody else. So they had lost their witness. And they had also lost their purpose of work. Losing the Sabbath was a sign that work was only for materialistic gain. That there is no other reason for their work than to get more money. That was, that was the sign. Losing the Sabbath meant that there is no higher purpose for work at all. That that is it. And that's kind of an important thing for us to see when it comes to our work as well. Herbert Schlossberg writes this. He said, All true needs, such as food and drink and companionship, are satiable. Like you can sate them. You can, you can fulfill those needs. But illegitimate wants, like pride and envy and greed, are insatiable. Enough is never enough. And so we can see that in our lives as well. I mean, if you, uh, some people in the world don't have those needs of food and drink and companionship. But in this room, we have those needs that they're satiable. If you're hungry, you get some food. If you're thirsty, you get a drink. We get lonely, but we also can, you know, can come to our church community and find companionship. But those other needs, like greed and envy and, and pride, you can never get enough of those. They're food that does not fulfill. They're food that does not uh, sate us. So we keep eating those and eating those and we never can get enough. And that's the thing that Nehemiah was worried about is that they're in the midst of this process where they're eating a food that does not fulfill. Their pursuit of materialism and money was this, this pursuit that would never sate them. It was in, it would, it's an insatiable need. And that's the challenge for us as well, as we think about lowering our standards. One of the main reasons we lower standards is with money and finances. What we spend our money on, what we do with our finances, is one of the main things that we often can compromise in. And so we're challenged just to think about the purpose of our work. That our work, even if you're doing work that you don't think is meaningful at all, your work is to glorify God. 
You do that through the way you react to your coworkers. You do that through the ways that you do your work with honesty and integrity. That's the way you show that Jesus is Lord, even though you never say that to somebody. Pray God that he gives you opportunities to share your testimony through your work as well. But you share a testimony by just doing your work well and loving the people you're with. And the money that we have also is not ours. It's God's like we talked about. That's why we focus on tithing as part of our service. That it's important to remember in worship that we are God's. That God is ours. That everything we have is God's and should be given to him freely. So we see this uh, going through the life of Israel and we have one last thing that we see that has to do with the families of Israel. We see that as he was looking around, he also saw that Jewish people had married women of Ashad, Ammon, and, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashad, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. So again, we see this thing that they're doing that was fully against what God had commanded them and what they agreed to earlier. They agreed that they were not going to marry idol worshipers because that would pollute the worship of God. But now they're marrying idol worshipers to the point that half of the people running around Jerusalem did not speak the language of Jerusalem. They were speaking other languages and worshiping other gods. And so we see here again that Nehemiah was cursing and pulling their hair and making them take an oath in God's name. And we can see that he did that because this is an incredibly important issue. I know some of us did not grow up in Christian homes. I did not grow up in a Christian home. But every time we baptize a baby here, I don't know if you noticed that last Sunday, we have a special question for the parents. When Carl and Wei Ting were up here last week, we asked them a special question. Will you serve God by teaching your children about the gospel? By bearing them up in the way of the Lord by teaching them through word and example that Jesus is Lord. And that's a special responsibility of of all Christian parents, but it's even the responsibility of any of our households. Now, some of you live with your parents. Some of you live alone. Some live with roommates. Some have families. Some live with grandparents and, and extended family as well. And that's also part of the challenge for all of us is to as far as we can do, to the extent that we have power to exalt Jesus as Lord in our families. So if you live with your parents and your parents don't believe, that just means loving your parents as Christ would love them. It means seeking to follow Christ as best as you can in the midst of your home. If you live with grandparents and extended family, that just means seeking to care for them, to work out conflicts quickly, to follow the example of our Lord Jesus in all things. With our families and our children, it means raising them up in the way of the Lord, teaching them and guiding them intentionally to the way. And this is one of the things that that is so quickly slips away from us. Because time is, is, uh, flies by, there's always things to do, houses are often chaotic, you know, there's always another thing that can happen. But our challenge is always to see that my responsibility, as far as I can, to the extent I have and the power I have, is to worship the Lord. So we've seen these examples. 
all these examples of the life of Israel that really cover much of our life as well about how standards can slip. And as we end the story, we see that Nehemiah does not leave with much encouragement. He really does not leave the people with much encouragement. We see that kind of what he did is uh, he purified the priests and he, the Levites and everything foreign, and he assigned them duties, each to his own task, and also made provision and contributions of wood and designated times and for the first fruits. And so we see what he was doing is he was making provisions to kind of put them back the way they were. To say, you do this, don't do this, you do this, don't do this. And that's the first thing that we do when we realize that our standards have fallen. We seek simply to return. Simply to come back to our first love. Simply to come back to the Lord we know. And then as we do that, we realize what our standard is. And as Christians, we have the fulfillment that Nehemiah is pointing to. The hope that Nehemiah points to comes to fruition starting in Advent, where we realize that the hope of God has come in a person, Jesus Christ, to save us from our sins, past, present, and future. So when we look to what our standard is, our standard is not perfection. When you look at your life in Christ, your standard is not to do everything right all the time, never make a mistake, or God will not love you. That God will be mad at you that you will only be forgiven if you do everything right. That is not our standard. Because that standard is too high. We can never fulfill it. But our standard is Jesus Christ. That is the standard of all people who love and are saved by Jesus Christ. Our standard is him. So firstly, what that means for us is our standard is to receive the love of Christ. When we realize our standards are lowered... When we realize that we have not done what we should, that we have lived in a way not worthy of Christ, our standard is simply to receive his love. Paul says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have lowered their standards. All have found themselves without ability to match up to God's glory and goodness. All of us have. But the hope that Paul gives us in that is that all are justified by grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. So that means that what justifies you? Does your work justify you? Does your family, do your friends, does your performance justify you? Does it make things right? No. Only God and Jesus Christ can fully justify you. Only he can fully make you right. Only he can fully heal your sin. Only he can fully give you new life in him. Only he can save you from sin and death and the devil. Only him. And when we realize that comes this tremendous freedom. We are free from sin and death and the devil. We still live with sin in ourselves. We still can lower our standards and fall away from God. But God does not change. Jesus Christ saves us not by our own works, but by his love. So when we receive that, when we say yes to it, it begins to change things in us. It begins to change who we are. It begins to change our motivations. And so we're called, when we receive his love, to live in his love. 
Just simply live in it. Just simply receive it. Mike Iaconelli uh, describes that this way. He says, Jesus is not repelled by us. No matter how messy we are, regardless of how incomplete we are, when we recognize that Jesus is not discouraged by our humanity, is not turned off by our messiness, and simply doggedly pursues us in the face of it all, what else can we do but give in to his outrageous, discriminate love? And that's the thing about living in Christ. We live in obedience not because we have to, not because we're afraid of some punishment. We live in obedience because we want to, because God has loved us outrageously. He has given us so much of himself that what can we do in return except love him in return? And then simply we're called to share that love with others, to share it in word and deed. So as you approach Advent this year, in these four weeks I encourage you just to reflect upon your sin. To reflect upon those standards that have been lowered in your life. To not run away from those or to avert your gaze, but to simply look at them. And as you see them, to just give them to our God who loves you. To give them to the God who loved you so much that he became a human being, born of a baby. As the angel said to Joseph, to forgive his people of their sins. And receive the hope That your standard is Jesus. So our standard is this God who loves us so much that he gives his life for us. So we're called to receive that love. And then live in that love. And then give that love through word and deed. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, we thank you that you love us with this amazing, overwhelming,
drink this in remembrance of me. Whenever you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim this Christ as a